0: Hello there. Welcome to The Pocket Contemplative. I'm Dave Smelser. And if you are listening to this right when it drops, Merry Christmas. My wife Grace is in a spiritual director's training program, which has offered us lots of interesting things to talk about. And one of the things she's learned is what to me is a fresh way of understanding stages of spiritual development, why our faith or lack thereof over the years can feel so different as time passes and why growing in such things can feel so threatening, both to us, but also to friends or family members who see us changing. So this week, taking a lead from a classic book, we're going to look at six stages of faith, from the first flush of suddenly believing that who knew there actually seems to be a God who has great plans for your life, to, on the other hand, like becoming a -a once-a-generation holy person. It is fascinating stuff. Before we get started, if you'd enjoy exploring weekly online groups that many people in America and well beyond explore uh, around the sort of faith we talk about here, you can get all the information about how to do that along with much more at journey-on.net. And if you're the sort of person who enjoys year-end giving, by all means, consider us here. It would be most appreciated. You can do that at the Give tab at journey-on.net. All right. That said, let's get rolling with On Stages of Faith. I've had some small encouragements recently. I have felt more grateful and less stressed out by many aspects of my life. I attribute this to several things turning my way, but some real percentage of the encouragement I do give to whatever spiritual growth I've been experiencing. But it has seemed to me that the nature of spiritual growth is that we ultimately, by definition, can't predict where it's headed. We're going into a country we haven't yet visited. And that, of course, brings some degree of threat for ourselves, but maybe also felt by people around us. So I find myself thinking of an early memory from when I got a master's in theology, I was in my first class of a professor who was the reason I'd gone to that seminary, a surprising thinker named Daniel Fuller. He was, on the one hand, a very, very pious man. He would talk with great passion about how each year he would read the entire Bible on his knees, a pious, passionate guy. But he was also sort of a renegade thinker for all of his piety, which made him attractive to me. And on the first day of my first class with him, I remember him saying something sort of shocking to a bunch of young people who were attending a school meant to train them in deep God things. He said that his commitment was not to Jesus, which was a shocking thing to say in that setting, but his commitment was to the truth, and if the truth took him away from the things he presently held dear, he would follow the truth, which, depending on where that search took him, we all realize that could like cost him his career. Maybe that would cost him his marriage, though his wonderful wife was a TA in his course. I got to know them both pretty well, and as I remember, she just nodded indulgently like, yep, that's the man I married, and of course, even it could cost him what he understood to be his salvation. So that was kind of a threatening concept. Now, again, those things hadn't happened. He was a guy who still read the entire Bible on his knees each year, but it still made an impression because I believed him. And remembering that moment highlights to me that growth of any kind, not least spiritual growth, as I've said, seems to involve some threats. So why would anyone embark on a journey with threats like that? My wife, again, Grace and I, have both been looking at more models of growth and development recently. And these models usually have a like a psychologist involved, and they look at growth from different angles. So if you've been a regular listener of this podcast, or if you've read my books, you might be aware that over the years, I have talked about another stage theory of spiritual and emotional growth, which was indeed spearheaded by a psychologist, that you might say that previous one, not so much the one we're looking at today, it looks at growth from the perspective of consciousness. It looks at the stakes at play in any given stage. And, um, and the risks that we take as we progress through the stages they talk about. I have looked at related theories, like this thing that many of you would be familiar with called spiral dynamics. That has an element of this stuff too. But for today's purposes, I'm going to look at this um, stage theory model from spiritual direction. It's called The Critical Journey, Stages in the Life of Faith. It's by a woman named Janet Hagberg and a man named Robert Gulick. Gulick actually also taught at the theological seminary I attended. Let me take a look at uh, their stages from a, I'm sure, a superficial initial point of view. And again, these stages are different from the other stages we sometimes talk about here. So, their first stage they call the recognition of God. This is that first flush that you've stumbled upon something amazing. Maybe you've been a churchgoer for many years and suddenly you realize God's real and God makes a difference in your life and God's is is awesome and vast and you're like humbled at the you know the opportunity that's suddenly been dumped in your lap. And where has this been all your life? And why aren't people more persuasive in telling you about it? Or maybe they didn't even try. And maybe you found something nobody else has found. It's very exciting initial flush that God is real. Uh, if you have been a regular listener to the pocket contemplative, We've also talked about this thing called the first naivete. This would have elements of that. So to quote Hagberg and Gulick, they write, we believe in this stage that our lives are orchestrated by God, whose perfect will promises harmony and peace for everyone who follows God. We trust people in this stage implicitly, especially those who share our faith. Um, A possible example from the Bible would be young, not yet King David, wondering why no one is taking on this evil giant Goliath. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? He's got faith. Where's everybody else? Kind of a very stage one on their terms way to look at it. Now, each of these early stages, at least, have possible downsides. And one possible downside of this stage is that it could play to superstition, to a belief that you're going to have success, but you do to have success, you have to play the game by God's rules. What if you don't know God's rules? So that can lead to wanting some mentoring, which leads to their second stage. Stage two, they call the life of discipleship. So here, you want people to help you out. Here's what they write about it. Many find the move to the second stage strongly tied with the recognition of and a desire to follow a significant leader or a belief system. We want and need to be led, taught, and discipled. We develop a good feeling that these are my kind of people. So we get a a group in this second stage, a group who thinks like us, who's helping us find faith together, who's teaching us the ropes, maybe led by some charismatic, dynamic person. A possible example from the Bible for this would be the role in the Old Testament that Israel plays as being the people of God. They've got a group. It's Israel. It's the people of God. I think back to a denomination I led a church in for many years who at conferences would talk about how excited they were to find what they would call their tribe, meaning people who think like them in this denomination. That would be a very second stage sort of sentiment. Now, interestingly, and this would be different than this previous stage theory I've talked about here— This second stage is not just a conservative thing. It could be any ideology. So uh, Hagberg and Gulick write, for some, a cause itself is so compelling, it becomes the leader. It tells us what principles and behavior to follow. So hunger relief, evangelism, wellness, peace, healing, racial and LGBTQ justice, missions could represent, represent causes to which we ascribe in the second stage. At this stage, people see the cause or the leader as the answer Because it's truly enlightened or changed them, they become enthusiastic to see others have the same experience so they too can find satisfaction. Confusion or disappointment could arise when others don't seem to have the same experience after hearing their leader speak or reading their books or accompanying them to meetings, worship, workshops, or seminars. There's comfort at this stage, knowing that we personally do not have to figure out the answers and someone else can help us with them. Many people clearly describe their life of faith at this stage as comfortable. We do not feel like launching into uncertainty. A wonderful example of this might be the comforting section of each Gideon Bible. Perhaps you've run across Gideon Bibles. I suspect they're more a thing of the past, but back in the day, in at least American hotel rooms, in every hotel room in America, this charitable organization, the what Gideon Society, would put a copy of the Bible in every nightstand drawer. And so every weary traveler uh, could turn to the Bible for comfort if they wanted after their nights. Um, their day's work. In the Gideon Bibles, there'd be the section in the front, which would list where we could turn to in the Bible for anything we might ever need. So it would cover things like grief, or suicide, or joy, or bad times, or how to get the new birth. And it would show us in that first little chart there were clear-cut answers for any need we might have, and they're in the Bible. A very second stage way of looking at the world. Now, Hagberg and Gulick point out possible downsides of stage two. They say, well, it's very seductive at this stage to believe that what's right for us in the faith is what's right for everybody else as well. There's a tendency to become legalistic and moralistic here. Whatever the group's orientation, whether liberal, conservative, or in between, its teachings, doctrines, codes of conduct must be adhered to or the offender is alienated, gets kicked out. The more conservative side often substantiates their viewpoint from scripture to make it unarguable. Um, and for, for some of us in stage two, they say that gradually we come to realize that the group isn't exactly what we've been looking for. And so we grow disillusioned with it and we criticize it. We accuse it of changing. We uh, criticize it for not being for us what we really need. It might be that the leaders begin to move in a different direction than the one we found or thought we found when we joined it. So we leave. Second stage. Third stage, the productive life. In this stage, who we are becomes useful for God. So people look to us as we help them with their faith journey. So maybe in the second stage, as I certainly did, uh, you would be given things like spiritual gifts inventories, where you can check off traits that you see in yourself that could apply to things the Bible says might be this thing called a spiritual gift, and that could help you know what sorts of things you should be doing for God. Or you might be learning doing personality profiles just to learn the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram or things like that to help you understand who are you as compared to other people and how could you fit into this world and be productive and, and be used by God, that you matter. So, uh, Grace, as we've been looking at these stages, has said, oh, well, back when we were sort of riding high in this church in Cambridge, you know, classic stage three, where we were in the middle of the productive life, you know, where our gifts mattered. Now, it seems, Hagberg and Gulick tell us, to be almost an insatiable period, because everything in this period is going well. For some, this is captured in the phrase, if God be for us, who can be against us? We're doing this thing. We're useful for God. They cite a ton of scriptural examples, like Deborah would be one who rises up as this great champion, and who Deborah is makes a big difference for God's people in that period. Uh, So they talk about possible downsides of stage three, which could be that no one can be around us without hearing our story and are trying to convert them, whether to a charismatic experience, a peace or justice issue, a born-again faith, or the latest spiritual seminar. And we insist on personal acceptance of and participation in our experience, Because that makes us feel successful in our faith. We take personal satisfaction in having saved others from some horrible faith. So when stage three starts turning bad for us, they say, we are burning out and frequently, frequently at the same time feeling unappreciated without knowing why. People didn't change in the ways we wanted them to or at the pace we expected them to. Usually the complaint, they say, boils down to one thing, others disappointed us. We tried as hard as we could to make it happen, but other people let us down, which does sound like a downside of this stage. So what happens next? Well, their fourth stage, when we feel we were riding high and it all crashes, is kind of a downer stage. They call it the journey inward. They say this move from stage three to four is most likely precipitated by a crisis in our life or our faith. That crisis makes many of the former truths and answers inadequate or inappropriate for the next phase in the journey. It'd be great to think that most priests, ministers, and other spiritual leaders could be our guides through stage four, but the sad truth is that many of these leaders have not been led through the stage themselves and have not allowed themselves to question deeply or to become whole in this way. So many of those to whom we often look most naturally for help are inadequate guides for this part of the journey. This journey is intensely personal and difficult to share with others, which makes it hard to develop any sense of belonging. So I don't know if this fits your experience. Grace's and my reflection would be that many people who find their way into the stuff we do in our, our online groups and perhaps even in this podcast is kind of targeting this fourth stage, that it's people who are no longer, maybe who were riding high in a faith tradition that was working for them for a while or very productive, but that who hit this sort of crash this journey inward the sort of sense of where are my moorings now and how do I continue on with God through it but maybe in a different way than I'd understood was possible and um, so we think yeah kind of a we're sort of a stage fourish on there these guys' term thing here so they have possible spiritual examples Peter Jesus's friend so the Peter who emerged after Easter to lead the church after Pentecost was a pretty different Peter from the man for whom the cock had crowed. Peter's riding high. He's Jesus' close buddy. He has a major crash. Jesus is crucified. That's all pretty bleak, and then he becomes a different sort of leader afterwards. Or Elijah, who went from being God's great representative on earth to fleeing for his life and wondering what on earth just happened. They say to get to the stage of productive living, the third stage, we had learned things like obedience, innocence, belonging, and being in the center of a group. At this stage, all we can say is that we're seeking a direction so vague and unclear that it's frightening. We know that we are no longer seeking, though, an answer, which I think is really interesting. In the fourth stage, you've sort of given up that you're looking for an answer. You're looking for something different than that. Now, I said that when things go well at this stage, we experience a new kind of yielding. We relinquish our ego. Whereas before, we were more confident in ourselves, now we're becoming deeply confident in God to take care of us totally. Paradox becomes key here. What's true is also false. That is, Our church or family represented God, but they didn't represent God. Both. This fourth stage, as I've been indicating, can be uncomfortable. Sometimes it's what people would call the dark night of the soul, a time of feeling withered and alone, searching and not finding, or grieving and feeling a loss. They talk about this part of the fourth stage they call the wall, where it all suddenly grinds to a halt utterly. And they say we simply can't go through the wall while working 60 hours a week, whether at home or in an office or on the road. We have to set aside time for solitude, time to walk, to listen to God's voice, to think, to feel and to reflect, and that would obviously fit the spirituality that we talk about here. Okay, little little summary moment. Let's let's take a take a survey backwards. And again, this is quoting them. In the first three stages our faith or our spirituality takes its its expression most frequently in ways that are prescribed by external standards whether by the church, by a specific spiritual leader, a book, or a set of principles. Other people tell us what to do in those first three stages. Stages four through six, though, represent a difficult personal transformation and re-emerging that require a rediscovery on a different level of what faith and spirituality are all about. These are inner healing stages, spiritually and psychologically, for which the journey can't be prescribed. All right, fourth stage. So you might say, what's the good news? Is this going somewhere good? What might that be? And the first of the two good stages they describe is stage five, which they call the journey outward. They write, at stage four, we meet ourselves, discover forgiveness, and experience healing. Yet the healing process and integration has to continue. At stage five, we grow into the full awareness that God truly loves us, even though we are never fully whole. God loves us in our humanness. And I'm intrigued by their observation here, as if in the first three stages, There's a sense of, well, I know I'm broken, I know I've got issues, I know my life doesn't always work, I know I'm not perfect, I know I'm a sinner, whatever whatever we know is bad about ourselves. In the first three stages, there's still the sense that we're going to figure out how to fix it. We'll get better. By the time you go through that fourth stage, you have given that up, and you're finding God even though you have no hope of ever fully being whole, and that's not even the issue, that God loves you without that being on the table, which I think is fascinating. Having come through the wall, we realize we can be useful to others as well in this fifth stage in a different way than we were in that third productive life stage. So, in this fifth stage, they say, we experience a humor, cosmic and divine, that causes us to chuckle at things that may not have seemed funny before. We come to realize that God's purpose corresponds with our own deep longing and purpose that we were not yet aware of. It was there all along. We begin to experience God's choices for us as our calling. Let me take a moment on that. I think in the first three stages, in like, devout settings, my experience was, and I think they would say, there's a strong sense that we're trying to figure out who we are in God and who we are in ourselves. It's who we are, our calling. I remember early on in graces of my marriage, we would have those, those conversations with one another. What's my calling? How do I know? How do I know what I'm called to do? In this fifth stage, what they're saying to me that's interesting, we begin to experience God's choices for us as our calling. Whatever your reality is, guess what? That's your calling is sort of what they're saying. And there's real meaning in that, as opposed to just defeatism in that, which I think is fascinating. They say, in this fifth stage, we are not in charge. We don't do the planning. But eventually, we feel the striving that we felt before cease. And we're not sure when it happened. We develop a deep calm or stillness. We have learned what keeps us connected to God, and we have developed disciplines that are part of our lives, those that promote inner calm and clarity. We live out of the center. We become natural healers. And we're clear about our calling, which again is just the life God has given us. And we've let go of our anger and grief over past wounds. Also fascinating to me, that one way of getting, you know, you've gotten through that fourth stage is that people who have hurt you or ways that God has let you down or life has let you down or you have let you down, you've kind of let go of. That's the way to emerge out. To me, fascinating. And then finally, there's our sixth stage, the life of love. Now, in ways I'll describe it in a minute, this struck me as like, a little unrealistic or something. I, who's in this sixth stage? I, I'm not sure what stage I'm in, but I'm very confident it's not the sixth stage. And one thing that Grace and I talked about in reading The Critical Journey this wonderful book is that I became less persuaded by their later stages. And Grace says, yeah, I think that's because they themselves would not claim to always live in those later stages. It's, they're just looking at them from the perspective of the great spiritual writing and things like that. So nonetheless, there's a sixth stage, the life of love. This might correspond to what here we have called, in psychological terms, flow, but it's probably not far from what in the East you would call enlightenment or what the church of the Desert Fathers and Mothers would call being pure of heart and so seeing God, or what, as we'll talk about in a minute, a lot of the great Christian mystics would call union with God. That's the sixth stage, the life of love. Here... We give our all without feeling that it means surrender or sacrifice. So we're just engaged. We're kind of locked in. We're in flow. And people would say, wow, that person's so amazing. They're doing so much. And you would think, I don't know, it doesn't seem like sacrifice. I'm just kind of doing what I do. We find that we actually did seem to... We, I'm sorry. We find that we actually do seem to trust God in this stage. Instead of working to trust God as we did in previous stages. Also an interesting point that in the first three stages some problem comes up and some mentor figure might tell us, you know, Dave, you just got to trust God in this thing. And so then your response is supposed to be, I guess, I'm just going to trust God. And we kind of work our... I I will. I know I don't trust God well enough. I need to trust God more and I'm going to do it because trusting God's going to get me what I need. In the sixth stage, you actually just do trust God. You don't try to trust God. I suppose it's the Yoda law. There is no try. You just do. It's kind of, that's where your life has come, as I understand it. They say in this sixth stage, it's not that we don't appreciate nice things like beauty, health, and happiness. Of course we do, but we are not attached to nice things or to things in general. We're free of encumbrances. We travel light. Jesus' itinerant style of life reflected his detachment from earthly possessions, they write. Often seen as the guest in a home or a dinner, Jesus had learned that God's call to him meant freedom from things and stress. When a man asked him what he needed to do to know life, Jesus told him, sell his possessions, give the proceeds to the poor, and become one of his disciples, as if that would be a way into the sixth stage. Yet they tell us we never find Jesus anywhere in the gospel fretting over food, clothing, or shelter. Rather, we hear Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount exhorting his disciples to seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness instead of worrying about food, drink, clothing, or what's coming tomorrow. Again, they would say that would take us to the sixth stage. Now, in this, this final, this biggie stage, this union with God stage, we finally define ourselves less than we did even in that fifth stage, the outward life. They say this stage represents not our work, our calling, our life, but instead the life we live in God. It's all about the transcendent life we live beyond ourselves. People in this stage will probably be uninterested in things like personality profiles or tests to discover their gifts, not because they're not self-reflective, but because they know themselves pretty well now and are not interested in being validated or recognized. So, Hagberg's and Gulick's looks at stages five and six, again, seem a little less developed. But as we may talk about sometime soon, many, maybe most, great Christian mystics from throughout the centuries, and I've read a ton of them, talk mostly about what Hagberg and Gulick are calling stage six. And it's a frustrating part of reading about these great mystics. The only thing that really seems to interest them is this sort of mystical union with God. And I can find myself asking as I read them, who actually gets that? Maybe people who are cloistered, who live all their life in prayer and don't have other responsibilities, maybe they get that. Or maybe it's not even just those people, it's those people who are also great spiritual geniuses. So sure, if you're Bernard of Clairvaux in the 12th century, yeah, you get it. Or St. Bonaventure took over from St. Francis, another great spiritual genius, you get it. Or Meister Eckhart or something else, or Teresa of Avila or Julian of Norwich, those people might all get it. But what value is any of this for just normal people in our own era, I can wonder. And what Hagberg and Gulick helped me with here was that seeing this as just one more stage to be aware of helps it be something that perhaps we can at least do our part, kind of work our own fundamentals to at least set a context by which we can get glimpses of the sixth stage. We don't have to be the great spiritual genius, or we don't have to be the cloistered monk, or none, necessarily. And that helped me dial back enough to ask God what shooting for this might look like for me. Shooting for it, not arriving there, but just like what, how, how to be a little less skeptical instead of say, well, let's take my shot. And then, then that immediately seemed to suggest some practices I could get started on right away, which were not too onerous for me, and which in the early going have offered some real encouragements. Again, maybe we'll look more deeply into this soon. But let's review. Let's take a look at Hagberg and Gulick's summary of what their stages of faith offer us. So, their stage one, the recognition of God, they say, humbles us. Their stage two, the life of discipleship, they say, grounds us. Their stage three, the productive life, they say, rewards and exalts us. Their stage four, the inward journey, they say, unsettles us. And then this aspect of stage four called the wall, they say, unmasks us then there's stage five, the journey outward, transforms us. And there's stage six, the life of love transcends us. All right. A look at six stages of faith. I hope you found them as interesting as I have. I think we're probably going to be referring back to them some as the Pocket Contemplative continues, and I thought it'd be fun just to look at it at this early stage in our conversation together. All right. Well, happy new year to you, and thank you so much for listening to this week's Pocket Contemplative. We will talk again here soon.